This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, a new child development center has opened at the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, bucking a trend of campus child center closures due to costs. The honest truth is that it's, it's very expensive and there aren't very many out there. So, so we were very thankful that our administration believed in this process. Plus, engineering antiquity. Our modern interstate system, uh, there's some legacy there of the Roman road. And 100 things to do in Fayetteville. And then I thought, well, this book really isn't just for people who come to town, you know. Um, So I started thinking about it from people that have lived here forever, people that are new but live here now. A new book offers a checklist for Northwest Arkansas City. First, this news from NPR. The Scott Family Amazium invites guests to make, tinker, and explore with regional mechanics, craftspeople, and artists at Tinkerfest, Saturday, September 23rd from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Featuring hands-on activities for the whole family, celebrating technology, engineering, art, and more. Information at amazium.org. It's Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. This hour, we're looking back, way back, and a little bit ahead, too. The University of Arkansas's Honor College will conduct a signature seminar titled Engineering Antiquity about the marvels of ancient engineering. We'll talk with Kevin Hall, who will lead that honor seminar. And then we'll look into the near future to find out how Northwest Arkansas is readying for a time when more cars are electric. This week's I Am Northwest Arkansas episode explores the transition to e-vehicles, and we'll hear an excerpt. First, a new child development center has opened on the University of Arkansas Fort Smith campus. This growth bucks a national trend of campus child learning center closures. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich visits the Little Lions Center to bring us the story. A half dozen toddlers are very busy this morning inside Little Lions Child Development Center on the University of Arkansas Fort Smith campus. The children play in a toy kitchen, cuddle baby dolls, or listen as staff read books to them. Oh, say, baby. Shelley Hinahan, a professor in the School of Education, directs the Early Childhood Education Program at the college. She worked with key colleagues to establish this on-campus center, which opened mid-August. It's actually been a dream of many people for a very long time. You know, they used to have a, they had a child care center here in the 70s and 80s. And then it wasn't here when I, when I came here in 2004. But lots of people have wanted this. And then... Uh, the Build Back Better funds made it possible for us. A Build Back Better grant provided by the Arkansas Division of Child Care and Early Childhood Education was used to renovate and supply several rooms in the Eccles building on campus. Uh, This is the toddler room. Uh, We would serve 18 months uh, to three years in here, so 18 to 36 months. Uh, The ratio is uh, one teacher to seven toddlers. Uh, we, We hope to have two teachers and 14 toddlers in this room. The mission of Little Lions is different from traditional private child care, she says. Well, and I'm sure that, that most child care centers are all about you know, the developmental needs of a child, but for us, it's also about uh, providing a safe space for uh, student parents who would like to go back to school and, and provide for their family after they, get, after they obtain a degree. 
and and so we that's our that's our number one mission is to provide childcare for the students. According to the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Arkansas ranks among the top five states for the number of families struggling to access quality childcare. Faculty and staff can enroll their children here, as well as the public. Hinahan says fees are higher compared to conventional private daycare, but the resources provided to infants and preschool children are a key investment in their futures. We align every activity, every outcome is aligned to the Arkansas Early Childhood Learning Standards. So um, um, it covers nine domains of a child's life in that, that first five years of life. And the very first domain is social-emotional because we're all about providing that social-emotional wellness aspect that sets them up for, for success in the future. So there's also, they, there's also the cognitive and the physical and all the different pieces, but we begin with social-emotional wellness. Uh, we really want to make sure the children uh, feel valued, respected, they feel loved. Hinehan authored a grant proposal to fund the center startup. This year's annual budget approved by the University of Arkansas Fort Smith is more than a half million dollars. For example, the preschool contains art, discovery, and pretend centers, plus lots of books to encourage love of reading. Everything should be play-based at this age. We know that children learn through play, so we make sure they have every chance they can to, to develop skills through what is perceived as play. <laughs> we want it to be fun. A spacious, tree-shaded playground provides amusement as well as learning opportunities for infants and toddlers, as well as university students pursuing degrees in early childhood education. Student Kenzie Reed tries to coax a small child to giggle for the microphone. Several more children toss playground dust in the air with tiny plastic shovels and rakes. Zoe Lunsford is lead pre-K teacher at Little Lions, which is certified under the State Department of Human Services Division of Child Care and Education's Better Beginnings program. So I have three to four-year-olds. And so um, with Arkansas Better Beginnings, we go off the Adventures of Learning curriculum for them. So everything we do from the inside to our playground is very centered based and very good for their developmental growth. And um, it's so exciting to get to work with that age group and just watch them grow throughout the year. So super fun. Taking a seat in Little Lion's staff quarter, Shelley Hinehan says there's growing interest and money to support early childhood education at University of Arkansas Fort Smith. So for working child care providers, if they're working 30 hours in a center, they can qualify for, a, for the TEACH scholarship that's, that's provided by the Arkansas Early Childhood Association. And it's an acronym that stands for Teacher Education and Compensation Helps. And so it, it pays for 90% of all their costs, including, including tuition, fees, books, everything. Hinehan says early child development majors at the university are passionate about their vocation. It's almost universal if they love children. I mean, everybody in the early childhood field, if you ask them what their motivation is for teaching, it's children. They want to, you know, they want to help them develop appropriately. They, they want to make a difference in the life of a child. Perhaps they had a preschool teacher or a kindergarten teacher that they have fond memories of. And, and so everybody who pursues an early childhood degree, I could almost 
I can almost guarantee it'd be because they love children. The Gene Tyson Child Development Center at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville accepts infants at eight weeks and children up to five years old. It too serves as a research facility for faculty and students. But according to the Institute for Women's Policy Research, the number of on-campus child development facilities has declined precipitously in recent years, primarily due to operational costs. Henehan says she researched college child care centers' best practices when establishing Little Lions. And the honest truth is that it's, it's very expensive and there aren't very many out there. So, so we were very thankful that our administration believed in this process. Fort Smith Public Schools facilitate services for children with disabilities enrolled in Little Lions, Heenahan says, but having adept University of Arkansas Fort Smith students working at the center with all the children is most valuable. They're very engaged with the children. They're down on the children's level. They're, they're all about meeting that child's need, every child's need. So it's, it's really a nice group. <laughs> we, we have some lovely students that are working with us right now. We step outside once again, this time into the preschool playground. And on the preschool side, you can see we have a, uh, a porch built onto the building. That's, our, that's the storage building for their tricycles and things. But the porch is so they can do some dramatic play, have a stage, some really fun things. Uh, we are excited to have the preschoolers here. Preschoolers who may one day enroll at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Speaking of the University of Arkansas Fort Smith, UAFS is celebrating Constitution Week with exhibits, discussions, and cupcakes. The U.S. Constitution was signed on September 17, 1787. Among the observations taking place, first of all, do you think they had cupcakes in 1787? I don't know, but I will find out by the end of the week. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Among the observations taking place on the UAFS campus this week, a discussion on the U.S. Constitution. It's a special presentation on display throughout the week from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. in the Borum Library. I'm going to bet you if they did exist in 1787, they were in France. That's my guess. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the presentation, A Written Constitution, The Greatest Improvement on Political Institutions, which will be hosted by Dr. Farrell Hansen, is tomorrow at noon. That's taking place in the Smith Pendergraph Campus Center by the fireplace. And a U.S. Constitution Quiz Bowl, Thursday at noon, in the same place, Smith Pendergraph Campus Center Fireplace. Oh, and the cupcakes? That was actually today, when the UAFS student government hosted Cupcakes and Constitution, The Importance of the U.S. Constitution to UAFS Lions. Hi, this is Daniel Carruth, local host from Morning Edition on KUAF. And one thing I think is true about all public radio listeners is that you are lifelong learners. You tune into NPR to know more about the world. We, the Zaporizhian Cossacks, defended the people who lived in this particular area. He says they defended their land against invaders, including Muscovite princes. Or about science. NASA's Osiris-Rex probe will bring the first sample of an asteroid back to Earth. The capsule is projected to land in... Or undiscovered history. A team of archaeologists slowly uncover long-buried structures and artifacts inside a hand-dug pit. Whatever you're curious about, you know you'll hear more about it on KUAF. And you can do your part to make lifelong learning possible when you contribute. Give at supportkuaf.com. Still to come this hour on Ozarks, Engineering Antiquity.
So we really dig into those narratives uh, on on why this technology existed, how did you know why were they using it the way they were, and so it really makes for a much richer discussion, um, and and it really helps the students to understand. At the end of the day, and I'm an engineer. At the end of the day, we need to continue to ask ourselves: just because we can do it. Should we do it? A University of Arkansas Honors College Signature Seminar next semester asks not just how some of antiquity's engineering marvels were constructed, but why. There is a preview talk about the seminar open to the public this week, and we'll learn more about the talk and the seminar in about six minutes. Mornings can be so routine. With Morning Edition from NPR News, you can build a little bit of the unexpected into your morning with stories of progress. The latest craze in Silicon Valley, silver orbs that scan your eyeballs. With stories of what it means to be human and animal. Why did you buy the cat? Because I was lonely. And something sweet. The flavoring is rose water and orange blossom water. Listen every weekday. You can join Daniel Carruth every weekday morning from 5 to 9 on Morning Edition right here on KUAF. Tourism in Arkansas continues to grow, both in tax revenue and employment. And that's compared to a record-setting year last year. Tax revenue during the first six months of 2023 was more than $12 million, up nearly 9% from 2022. Monthly tourism jobs also grew compared to 2022, up 6.5%. Our partner, Talk Business and Politics, manages the Arkansas Tourism Tracker, which follows specific measurements in the tourism industry, including tax revenue and tourism sector employment. You can find the full Arkansas Tourism Tracker report from January to June on talkbusiness.net. The U.S. Department of Commerce is announcing that the University of Arkansas is one of 11 recipients of the 2023 STEM Talent Challenge. The U of A was awarded more than $400,000 for their Biomanufacturing Workforce Initiative project. In a press release, Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo says the Biden administration is committed to investing in America. And through the STEM Talent Challenge program, they're making substantial investments in communities across the country. We'll hear more about this grant funding and the Workforce Initiative Project in an upcoming edition of Ozarks at Large. Today is National Voter Registration Day. Arkansas ranks dead last in percentage of registered voters at just 62 percent of eligible citizens registered to vote. Oklahoma is 47th with 67 percent. Oklahomans can register to vote online so long as an Oklahoma driver's license or state ID is on file with Service Oklahoma as well as a valid signature. Arkansans must still fill out a paper form. We'll have a link to the Arkansas online portal, as well as a PDF of the Arkansas voter registration in English and in Spanish on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. The United States Department of Education is recognizing 353 schools as National Blue Ribbon Schools for 2023, including three schools in Arkansas, Parkview Elementary in Van Buren, S.C. Tucker Elementary in Danville, and Westside Elementary in Cabot, all identified for their schools' overall academic performance or progress in closing achievement gaps. Secretary of Education McGill Cardona said in a press release that he takes tremendous pride in the achievements of these schools and their commitment to empowering educators, serving students, and engaging families. It will be a morning kickoff time for the September 30th football game between Arkansas and Texas A&M. The SEC announced yesterday the game in Arlington, Texas, will start at 11 a.m. This weekend, the Razorbacks are at LSU for a night game.
This is Ozarks at Large. In about 11 minutes, a conversation about the future of electric vehicles in northwest Arkansas. Right now, a discussion about engineering feats of the past. This spring, the University of Arkansas Honors College will host the signature seminar, Engineering Antiquity, led by Kevin Hall, Associate Dean for Academics in the College of Engineering and a civil engineer. He'll deliver a preview lecture, open the public, tomorrow evening at 5.15 in Gerhard Hall on the U of A campus. He came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio last week. He told me he'll talk about the how of these ancient engineering wonders, but also the why. A classic example, he says, is the Roman road. Not only how it's built, but the fact that it's just arrow straight through whatever terrain they encounter, if they can cut through the hill, they will. If they'll build, if they need to build a bridge, they will. But one of one of the operating narratives there is that not even nature can stop the Roman army, and so we really dig into those narratives uh, on on why this technology existed, how did you know, why were they using it the way they were, and so it really makes for a much richer discussion, um, and and it really helps the students to understand. At the end of the day, and I'm an engineer, at the end of the day, we need to continue to ask ourselves, just because we can do it, should we do it? That's what I'm after. And that's interesting because that's asking something of, to know something of then Mm -hmm. as well as now. Absolutely. You have to dig into the history. You have to understand the Roman Empire um, in, in a lot of its different forms. Um, and, and of course, from, from, I guess you would say, republic to empire, things change. And so some of the, some of the work, some of the public works that are done, republic era, may have a different narrative. You can see some shifts in that narrative from republic to empire. Um, certainly, individual emperors would pursue public works not for the sake of the public works. Um, you know, there's there's one there's one th- uh, story or one theory, if you will, that goes around about uh, Emperor Hadrian. Um, I was very fortunate this summer to go to Scotland and drove down to and through the UK to go to part of Hadrian's Wall. So, did Hadrian build it really, really to keep the Scots out of northern what we call England, or was it more? Rome was very built by the time Hadrian came on the scene. He needed a massive public works thing that had his stamp on it. So that narrative is a little different now than just we're going to build a defensive fortification. You mentioned the Roman roads that stretched for Mm. thousands of miles, arrow straight. Are there, I mean, there are connections to our roads now. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that you see when you study especially Roman engineering, uh, and we'll exp- we can expand that beyond just roads, when you, when you look at the basic needs of society, when you look at clean water, sanitation, transportation, uh, all of these different kinds of, of technologies, what, what you see in the built environment today is absolutely a reflection of what we saw or, or what you could see in Roman engineering. Now, obviously, other cultures, I mean, everything from Babylonian to Egyptian to Aztec, lots of cultures develop this kind of technology. I tend to focus on Roman technology, but certainly um, our modern interstate system, uh, there's some legacy there 
of the Roman road because the Roman road, obviously it was built for, um, for defensive purposes. The, the army could, could move rapid distances uh, relatively easily, com- commercial purposes and things like that. But they did things that other people didn't do. Number one, they paved them so that they were all weather. Hmm. And number two, they cut all of the vegetation back as much as they could 100 paces on each side of the road. Now, defensively, that means somebody can't ambush you right there on the road. But you look at modern-day highways with large right-of-ways on either side, that's a legacy from what the Romans uh, did. And so the other, the other and, and a lot of people know this, this little anecdote, but um, why is the Roman road as wide as it is? Well, that comes actually from the Babylonians. It's the widths of two horses behinds that would pull a, t- a two-horse cart or a two-horse chariot. Uh, we, we, we kept those kinds of measurements. And in fact, that's why rail gauges, that's why two rails on our railroads are, this, are that distance apart. I think the phrase engineering antiquity for most of us, pyramids, coliseum, yes. roads, I'm going to guess that it goes far beyond these major structures. Far beyond. Um, yeah, we, I do, I do, um, we do talk about the pyramids. We touch, in fact, just, just because it's interesting, we, all, we actually touch on Stonehenge. Uh, how in the world did they, we, we kind of know, we know pretty much now where the stones came from uh, and how in the world did they transport them and stand them up the way they did. And so we touch on that a little bit, but certainly the focus is on, is on Roman engineering. It's a fascinating topic because every element that we think a society needs to exist in a way that the people aren't under hardship. And, and again, most of this is not glamorous. I mean, most people look at a road and it's like, it's a road. It's not glamorous. But even to the point of sanitation and water supply— when you look, one one of the very very many reasons why the Roman Empire, you know, could could do what they did and the city of Rome become what it became is they had a very steady, very dependable clean water supply. That is not to be overestimated. I mean, why did most cities grow up by a river? They weren't going to take the water out of the river. Well, if you're dumping your waste into the river and plus the Tiber wasn't the cleanest of rivers anyway, they're not going to get their drinking water out of the Tiber. So they're going to bring it in from outside. And it's going to take some massive engineering to bring that much water in in from the outside. I mean, estimates of Rome being more than a million people even in the in the era that we're talking about, that takes tremendous amounts of water, not just for drinking, but they love their baths too. So <laughs> there's part of that culture there. What are some questions that maybe we can't answer because we just don't have the evidence or? Well, I mean, when you look beyond Rome, when you look at some of the others, do we, do we truly know? I mean, like without a shadow of a doubt, how the pyramids were built. Yeah. yeah, probably not. I mean, there's some great theories out there. You know, you've got the you've got the big sand wedge that you pull the blocks mm-hmm. over. Uh, some people think that the Egyptians knew how to make a, 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 a rudimentary crane. We don't really know um, how that how that really happened. But even uh, when you look at, at Roman engineering, it's only now that 
some some really groundbreaking work has come out about what really, in my mind as a civil engineer, is one of the miracles of Roman engineering, and that is concrete. Um, there's some great work being done um, both at Berkeley and some other places on really understanding the chemistry behind Roman concrete. They, you know, uh, there's some studies just within the last five years about uh, taking core samples from seawalls um, in Ostia and other places in Italy and some high technology 3D uh, X-ray scanning type things to really see, okay, all right, when you put that kind of volcanic soil or ash and soil with that kind of rock, with that kind of seawater, here's the chemical reaction that happens, and it never gets weaker. We're really starting to understand that now. And so it's really exciting, actually, that we're finally starting to figure out uh, exactly how they did it. Now, when you go um, and you see some of these sites, when you see the Colosseum, when you see the Pantheon, you really do. I mean, how in the world can somebody in that era build something like that? I mean, the Pantheon is still, one, in my mind, one of the wonders of the world. I mean, for, for up until just in the last hundred years, the largest freestanding unreinforced concrete dome in the world. And Roma's had earthquakes and other things, and that dome is still there. And when you see it, it's breathtaking, not just from an engineering standpoint, but from an artistic standpoint. And they built that and finished that in the early 2nd century. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling that they could do something like that. And sometimes I wonder if we really still understand. Is there any engineering structure that inspired a young Kevin Hall to go into civil engineering? Well, believe it or not, um, growing up um, in Memphis, uh, I was fascinated with road construction, and it happens to be what I do now. I teach people how to design and build roads. Uh, big, big construction project near my house, and I would play on it with my Tonka trucks. Back when Tonkas were real, they were metal, and they, I mean, you know, they were big. And That dump truck bed would that, actually. That, that yes. dump truck bed had a little hydraulic. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So so there was that. And then while I was, um, li- while I lived in Memphis, we still had a lot a family in Arkansas and watching what we called the new bridge over the Mississippi River being built and you built it from both ends and somehow they were able to meet in the middle you know those are the kinds of things that just fascinated me Kevin Hall associate dean for academics in the College of Engineering will lead the University of Arkansas Honors College signature seminar Engineering Antiquity next spring. He'll host a preview lecture tomorrow evening at 515 in Gearhart Hall on campus. The talk is free and open to the public. You can register by finding a link at the U of A Honors College website or that same link at ozarksatlarge.com. Do you like daily word puzzles that feature color-based hints? If you do, you're in luck. Introducing the KUAF Newsword, a daily word puzzle that tests your Ozarks at Large listening skills. Just go to KUAF's website or newsword.org slash KUAF to start puzzling. Happy thinking. This is Ozarks at Large. The average gallon of gas in Arkansas costs $3.45, a couple of pennies cheaper than last week and about a quarter more expensive than this time a year ago. Those numbers don't matter as much to owners of electric vehicles. 
Later this month, the second annual Drive Electric NWA event at Pinnacle Hills Promenade in Rogers will showcase EVs and electric bikes. This week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas is about the present and future of EVs in Northwest Arkansas. Host Randy Wilburn talks with Gary Berger, the founder and president of the Tesla Owners Club of Arkansas, Rob Smith, policy director at the Northwest Arkansas Council, and Chris Williams, the director of energy services at Ozarks Electric Cooperative. A lot of ground is covered in the conversation, including Chris Williams, Williams from Ozarks Electric talking about the utility's installation of several level two charging stations in the area in recent years. There's been about 3,000 charges on each one of those stations. So so we've pretty much our, our CEO, Mitchell Johnson, has the foresight to um, to realize that range anxiety was out there and what can we do to help. Ozarks as a whole looks at charging to become at you know at home overnight. That's our goal. Therefore, we, we developed, developed rates to incentivize our membership to, to plug in after, you know, after 10 p.m., you know, between 10. And if they can charge between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., yeah. they'll get basically half price power for those hours, up to 400 kilowatt hours. At, in the home? In the home, Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So that's really where Ozarks sees a lot of the growth. You still have the folks passing through the the region and you know they'll need this network of stations out there but but our goal is our membership the EV rate i mentioned has uh, 150 to 160 members that are utilizing that rate currently there's more and more coming on every day but Ozarks has really kind of grasped it and taken it as something very important to us yeah so clearly obviously you're aware of of the increase in electric vehicles in 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 our two counties but then also, eventually, there will be thousands of Teslas and Ford F-150s, Lightnings, and, and uh, soon we'll have the Chevy Silverado truck coming out as an electric vehicle and so many others. I'm waiting for that Hummer. That seems to be interesting. But do you think our NWA electric utilities are ready for this kind of growth, including Ozarks Electric? Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that there aren't some out there that may may not be jumping on board as quick as as they should be sure. but but you know our wholesale power provider Arkansas Electric who we purchase power from has you know that's their goal that's what they do is make sure that power is available to all the cooperatives that serve under 17 cooperatives like myself in Arkansas and yeah we feel if we can get folks to realize to charge off peak you know not roll in from home off after work, roll in and plug that thing in. If if we can get people to realize there's a good time to charge and it's not when you get home because typically right. the, the peak That's... peak is from three to seven on our system. So we really try to encourage folks to to wait to set that automatic timer to kick on at ten. Yeah, you, know, you don't have to get up and plug it in it. Get out in your pajamas, but. <laughs> Just uh, go do it, have it set up to charge in the evening hours. Well, and I'm noticing that all of the utilities are becoming a lot more creative in how they market some of their offerings and services. And in case in point, and this just came up the other day where one of the one of the local utilities is offering a, a Wi-Fi thermostat in the house that allows you, if you end up taking it, they give you a subsidy for that. And then if they're able to control the power demand of those times when you use it and when you're not using it, then you get a benefit, right? Because you, 
you have these challenges in some states like Texas and others where, you know, they have these brownouts and other issues that can become a real problem. And you don't want to have a brownout when it's 100 degrees outside. That's that's correct. And and we do, you know, we do monitor that. We don't necessarily want to control our, our members, you know, their comfort levels, things like that. But but we feel if we can incentivize them in some way, you know, give them a better rate, a time of use rate per yeah. se. And, and we do have that. It's a pilot with those arcs. But, you know, if, if members cannot utilize that dishwasher or clothes dryer from three to seven, you know, we'll give them pretty cheap power after that. So it it's on them to control and, and save money themselves. And a lot of people, that's what they want to do. Rob, what would you say from the council's perspective, what have you heard from council members about the adoption of electric vehicles? And are people bullish about that across the board? I think our members are very bullish about electric vehicles. Honestly, I think the whole region is, though. I don't think it's limited to just one group of people. I I hear a lot of positive things. Honestly, the reason we got interested in this, and we, we really had conversations initially with the Regional Planning Commission, it was about the bipartisan infrastructure bill. There is a lot of funding available there, and it just made sense for Northwest Arkansas to really press and to use that funding that's available to do more in the electric vehicle space. So there's there's funding available to uh, support DC Fast, which is the fastest type of charger that you can put out there. So that's significant. Um, there's, there's other funding available. School districts can get grants to purchase electric school buses. And that's, you know, they've handed out rounds of grants already. I don't think we've had any in Northwest Arkansas win, but my friend Chris may correct me. But it's certainly something we need to be thinking about in terms of of the future. You know, we wanted our region equipped with the fast chargers. So certainly that federal money matters. And we do that because we're we're a tourist destination for many people. You don't yeah. want somebody to not come to Northwest Arkansas from a driving distance because they can't get a charger here, one that's in good repair, available. And you're, you know, gradually you're seeing more and more of those fast chargers come online Francis Energy's got one going in in the middle of Springdale right there at the Harp store. So that'll that'll be a good improvement. You've got the superchargers. You've got ChargePoint's got chargers in the region. I think Ozarks Electric has the relationship with them. But we're seeing more and more of building the network that we need to support these vehicles. You know, we're going to, I feel like I'm going on here, but we have to think about not everybody can charge at home. If you live in an apartment complex, what do those folks do? If you're a person who Maybe you spend a long time at work without moving your vehicle. Maybe those companies should be offering you an opportunity to charge your vehicle. Move it at lunch so somebody else can park there in the afternoon. It's going to be an amazing transformation that's going to occur across Northwest Arkansas. And I just think the Northwest Arkansas Council and regional planning want to be supportive of that change that's coming and recognize that it really is is something that's going to happen whether we manage it like we're talking about, or we choose to not manage it and just kind of let it happen, if that makes sense. I keep reminding people that we're at the very beginning of this transition, and they're expecting everything to be perfect now, and it isn't yet. We have to be a little patient. So if you don't have charging at home, maybe it's not time for you to get an EV. If you don't want to deal with everything on a screen, maybe it's not time for you to get an EV yet. And what you're talking about, the charging especially if it's not on the supercharger network, it is a challenge, but there's features in the cars and there's features on your cell phone that will help you through that. But it's more work than just a gas car. 
and but people they want they want long range, they want cheap price, they want quick refill as fast as a gas car, and they want it all now. And we're not there yet. So when we do our cars and coffee presentations and the public comes and asks questions, I remind them we're not trying to shove this down their throat. If it's not if you're not ready, that's okay. We're right at the beginning. But every brand, absolutely every brand is coming out with something electric. Even Ferrari and Lamborghini and Rolls-Royce, they're all coming out with electric. They've already presented their their prototypes. So it is the future, but it, there's no reason you have to do it today. But if you want to, we're here to answer your questions. You can hear the entire episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas at IamNorthwestArkansas.com or at KUAF.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast through any major podcast outlet. The second annual Drive Electric NWA event is scheduled for Saturday, September 30th at Pinnacle Hills in Rogers from 11 to 4. The rain date is October 7th. Autumn Around Here presents a plethora of festivals, concerts, games, and outdoor opportunities. If you'd like a checklist to make sure you're aware of all the places to go and things to do, at least in Fayetteville, Jill Rohrbach has such a list. Jill, a staff writer for Arkansas Tourism, collected a long list of activities in her book, 100 Things to Do in Fayetteville Before You Die. It's part of a national series from Reedy Press, and it includes Hugo's, the Farmer's Market, and greedy goats. Jill, a Northwest Arkansas native and a resident of Fayetteville for 30 years, will launch the book Thursday night at Pearl's Books in Fayetteville. Last week, I asked her about capping her suggested inventory at exactly 100. That was the hardest part because at first you just think, okay, I have to make a list of 100. And everybody says, oh, I bet you got to 70. And then you started having a hard time. And I mean, yeah, I probably got to 70 just easily. But then I realized I was really going about it wrong because it isn't just a list of 100. How am I going to organize that? Is the U of A one listing? Does Old Main get its own? Do the Razorbacks get their own sports? I mean, you had to start thinking Carnal Hall. I mean, there are so many ways you could approach it. Um, at one point, I had Theater Squared and the Walton, Walton Art Center is separate, but that's not how they are now. <laughs> so you really just couldn't look at it that way. There, there are probably about 150 things mentioned in the book when it comes down to it. It's more than 100. You also have this timeline because we know how books are published. There is a deadline. Then it has to get put together. Then it has to come out. Did timeline ever come in like, oh, I want to put this, but I, I'm worried that 10 months from now maybe – Someone's retired or someone stopped doing something. That was my biggest worry, my biggest concern. And it happened pretty quickly (laughs) and more than once. Um, I had some things written. They were, you know, they were done. I was, I'd worked at it. I was proud of that, you know. And then, you know, Roots Festival. Stopped. They're not going to be. So that one went away. Um, They announced the folk school, but at that time it wasn't 
a certain thing. So I, you know, what do you replace something with? Um, shopping and fashion. I had dark star visuals in there. They've been around for 30 years. Who doesn't love Stacy? Right. I mean, that's a obvious. Um, I had already sent the book to the my editor. When Stacy announced when, that she was when she announced she was closing, so I immediately <laughs> got in touch with them and said, "Okay, hold on." And luckily, there were two different um, editing and proofing sessions with the book that came back to me. Um, but once I finally turned it in and went to the printer, then I just had to <laughs> cross my fingers. But it it did impact some of the things I chose. When you're putting this together, are you thinking about people who don't live in Fayetteville? Or are you thinking about people who do live in Fayetteville? I found myself first thinking about tourists. Um, and then I thought, well, this book really isn't just for people who come to town, you know. Um, so I started thinking about it from people that have lived here forever, or people that are new but live here now, um, you know, students that show up every year and this is a new town for them, or their parents coming to visit, you know, that are tourists. And um, I started trying to think of that broad spectrum. And what age am I talking to? Am I mm-hmm. talking to parents that want some things for kids and, you know, all kinds of things like that? So, and my husband and I would have <laughs> debates sometimes about, what should be in there, you know, and he'd say, well, not everyone can do that. <laughs> and But not everyone can, can do every single thing or wants to maybe. So there were so many things to consider that I didn't think about when I first said, oh, I'm going to write this book, 100 Things. <laughs> well, what I like about the title is it's things to do. It's not must do, have to do. And a lot of these books say, you know, a thousand and one movies you must see before you die. This is like, here are a hundred suggestions. Right. And it's really just a start. Look at what's already about to open up here in Fayetteville, just new new places to go and things to see or go eat. or And those aren't going to be in the book, right? It's a starting point. How many of the hundred things, were there any of the hundred things that you didn't know about until you started this process? That's a good question. There were things that maybe I had forgotten about. Um, new things I hadn't been to yet. I think I knew a lot about most of them, but that's because uh, my job is to be a travel writer. So I'm constantly looking at these things, and I've written about a lot of them in detail. So um, it wasn't that so much. But remembering some of the Mm. things that are out there. Is everything in the Fayetteville City Limits? Okay, that's a great question. Because I struggled with that, too. I've read some of the other Reedy Press books, and some people that write those, they have a town, but they've named things in nearby towns. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't feel like that was right for for us, for Fayetteville and for Northwest Arkansas. I mean, Northwest Arkansas is a group of cities, but they're very distinct on their own. And so I felt like Fayetteville had to be Fayetteville. So Buffalo River. Well, okay. That oh. said, <laughs> that okay. said, I did think about it like that. If I was in town, I would want to know about the Buffalo National River. So I did things that weren't necessarily in another city, but I see. Devil's Den, you know, iconic places that you go if you live in Fayetteville. Crystal Bridges will wait till the Bentonville yes, book. Yes. 
there is a thing on arts, and it's all Fayetteville. I do like have one sentence that says, "If you're this close," because that's such a right. huge, yeah. you know, place to go. But really, that's the only mention. Everything else is, um, you know, things like rivers and Devil's Den and parks. And if I decided that I was going to pick up this book and in one week's time, seven days, do all 100? Nope. Couldn't. No. Nope. Don't try. You couldn't do it. Well, because some are annual. Like yeah, there are a few yeah events that would be annual, but you just yeah there are so many things you'd never get to all of them. All right. And you know what was really fun though was the things that I knew about and maybe had done more than once in my thirty years or heard about and went for the first time. I mean, I got to look at my city with fresh eyes and. I would drag my husband along or my one of my well both of my sons would occasionally come with me on something and it was fun to go back and do some of those things again and just to get out of the rut of normal life and to go and do things and I I hope this book is inspiring in that way like yeah you know we really should go and do number 50. You know, we've never done that before. Yeah, I'm or, look at what number 50 well, is. Well, I don't know. Sled I just... the slopes on a snow day. <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll have to wait for snow, which doesn't seem like we're going to get right now. Right. But, um, th- I mean, it was a lot of fun. Even if it was just dinner at Hugo's. You know, right. we were out and about in our town. The launch for Jill Smith's book, 100 Things to Do in Fayetteville Before You Die, will be Thursday night at Pearl's Books in downtown Fayetteville at 6.30. In the days to come, KUAF's journalism is what you will continue to count on. As we all work together to revitalize education, rebuild the economy, reimagine workplaces, reform civic institutions, and take on climate change, KUAF exists to be responsive to you, not to pull higher ratings. KUAF reports to and for the public we serve, because public service is the bedrock of KUAF. Public support. Your support is fundamental to keeping KUAF editorially independent and strong. Without you, there is no KUAF. If you rely on KUAF, donate today at supportkuaf.com. And thanks. KUAF's Listening Lab continues to collect the voices of where we live. Recently, Emerson Alexander, the Listening Lab coordinator, took the mobile lab to Good Shepherd Humane Society in Eureka Springs. The Mobile Listening Lab visited the Good Shepherd Humane Society in Eureka Springs to talk with their staff and volunteers about the role the community plays in helping our four-legged friends. Hi, my name is Terry Hankins. I am our Animal Service Manager at Good Shepherd Humane Society. Um, Hi, my name is Caitlin Gallimore and I am the Programs Manager here at Good Shepherd Humane Society. Uh, Cole Wakefield, the executive director of Good Shepherd Humane Society that serves uh, Carroll County, Arkansas. So I had a lot of issues dealing with uh, public things, you know, going into stores and dealing with people. And since being here, I've faced a lot of them fears and I've just had to step up. And it's really got me to the point where I don't have issues where I go into a store. I don't have problems talking to people anymore. yeah, like right now, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's done wonders for me, honestly. It really has. You know, uh, not everybody has, knows this about me, but I mean, there was times I would not go in a convenience store. I wouldn't even go through a drive-through to order food because my anxiety was so intense. So, 
again, like I said, I mean, this, this place has been therapy for me. It really has. I had the weirdest, my dogs were just boarded for two weeks because we had to do some traveling for work. And it was the weirdest two weeks. It's so strange when they're not there. I have them, I've had them back home for two days now. And um, like Terry was saying, they're both individuals. And it's just, it's really, really hard when they're not with me. Sorry, I'm going to cry a little bit. <laughs> but it's really, really hard when they're not with me. Um, my older one, he keeps me really level-headed. Um, he's super, super sweet. And it took him, I got him from here, actually. And he had a pretty traumatic past from what I understand. Um, I wasn't here for that, but when I did finally start working here and I learned, um, he came into the shelter with a gunshot wound to the back of his head. And they healed him up here and he got mended and I brought him home and for a while he was like, really, really distant from me. Um, it took him about a year before he would even actually like cuddle me. And now our bond is like, I feel it's very, very deep. And he's my best friend and one of the most important parts in my life. Um, that's just something that I'm hoping that people relate with, with their own pets and that they understand when they come and volunteer for us or um, see our events or see our website or our videos or everything. And like, that that's what we're doing here and that's what we need help doing yeah so we are you know of course when people think about humane societies uh the first thing you think about are dogs and cats and um, of course that's what 50 years ago when this organization was founded um, that was a focus and it's still a large part of our focus today what we have learned over the last um, especially the last few years in our sector is that it's why the dog and cat stuff is important um, it really comes down to being about the people. So all of our issues, whether it's good things or bad things with, with dogs and cats or pets, it, there's always people connected. And that's why there are pets, uh, because people want them. And so we've worked really hard to um, redefine our approach. And um, instead of just dealing with the symptom of uh, pet abandonment or issues, and that's just housing them and readopting them. We really want to uh, become a, a, a solid community resource and, and deal with things and, and assist our community so that maybe they don't have to bring dogs and cats to, to the Humane Society. I mean, that's the best thing, um, especially as the more science we get and the more studies come out on the human-animal bond and how important uh, that human-animal bond is not only to the health of individuals and families, but to the health of the community as a whole. And so we really have shifted to that people-centric um, focus here. Um, and, it's t and it's hard. I mean, sheltering still is the, a massive percentage of what we do by far, uh, just because it's resource-intensive. But it is my opinion that until we start working harder in the community and start solving the problems before they get to our doors will always be overwhelmed at the shelters and and then we're not truly serving our communities in the best way that we can listen to more conversations from your community at listeninglabkuaf.com the listening lab is made possible by the walmart foundation we heard the voices of Terry Hankins, Animal Service Manager at Good Shepherd Humane Society in Yucca Springs, as well as Caitlin Galmore, the organization's programs manager, and Cole Wakefield, the executive director. Emerson Alexander is KUAF's Listening Lab coordinator. 
tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a new program across Arkansas to help reduce opioid overdoses. I like to say, you know, we're not prescribing the naloxone for um, risky patients. It's for risky medications. So we, we really need to just know that this medication is something that can be harmful to anyone. That's tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Venus. You can always find Ozarks at Large at ozarksatlarge.com. You can subscribe to our daily podcast as well. You can go to KUAF.com or any podcast distributor. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Wilburn, and Emerson Alexander, our listening lab coordinator. Our general manager at KUAF is Lee Wood. Now, in the first half hour today... We mentioned that the UAFS student government hosted Cupcakes and Constitution earlier today, part of Constitution Week at UAFS. Mm -hmm. And you asked if Cupcakes existed when the Constitution was signed in 1787. Right. Went to Wikipedia. That's always a good place to start. And according to Wikipedia, the the earliest extant description of what we now consider a cupcake. So this isn't the word, but this is the first known description of the object the object 1796 so just a oh. few years after the constitution very close there's a recipe for a quote light cake to bake in small cups this is included in american cookery by amelia simmons so it would appear that cupcakes are american wow yes now what about the word cupcake yes please okay continuing with wikipedia In the early 19th century, nope, wrong paragraph, continuing with Wikipedia, the earliest extant documentation of the term cupcake is in another cookbook from Eliza Leslie. This is in 1828, so a few years, a few decades later. And that uh, recipe is called 75 Receipts. Maybe that's what you called recipes then? I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I <laughs> like how you, yeah, yeah that's, what we, that's what they were called <laughs> in course. the 18th century. 75 receipts for pastry, cakes, and sweetmeats. The word cupcake is in that book. So they describe, they use the word cupcake. Then we have in a different place what we would consider a cupcake, but they're not connected in that moment, right? Well, I mean. So this is like the early 18th century? 1828 is the first time the word cupcake is used. Got it. But it's describing apparently the same thing that was described in American cookery in the late 18th century. Got it. So it took a while, I guess, for cupcake to become part of the, you know, the dictionary said that's our word of the year in 1827 or something. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, now I hope you're hungry. I I am. (laughs) Uh, This has been a fun edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. We're going to be with you again tomorrow, noon and 7. The Fayetteville Public Education Foundation presents the 2023 Hall of Honor Ceremony September 21st at the Fayetteville Public Library. Honorees include Dr. Daniel Stoney Anderson, Mary Frances Kretschmar, and Chatty Cumpy Platt. It celebrates the individuals who are dedicated to preserving the legacy of public education in Fayetteville. F-A-Y-E-D foundation.org for tickets and information.